Book Four, Chapter Nine of The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. Book Four, Professor and Prophet, eighteen seventy to nineteen hundred. Chapter Nine, The Storm Cloud, eighteen eighty four to eighteen eighty eight. Recording by Graham Arrowsmith. The sky had been a favourite subject of study with the author of Modern Painters. His journals for fifty years past had kept careful account of the weather and effects of cloud. He had noticed since 1871 a prevalence of chilly, dark bees, as it would be called in France, but different in its phenomena from anything of his earlier days. The plague wind, so he named it, tremulous, intermittent, blighting grass and trees, blew from no fixed point of the compass, but always brought the same dirty sky in place of the healthy rain-cloud of normal summers, and the very thunderstorm seemed to be altered by its influence into foul and powerless abortions of tempest. We should now be disposed to call this simply the smoke nuisance but feeling as he did the weight of human wrong against which it was his mission to prophesy believing in a divine government of the world in all its literalness he had the courage to appear before a london audience like any seer of old and to tell them that this eclipse of heaven was if not a judgment at all events a symbol of the moral darkness of a nation that had blasphemed the name of god deliberately and openly and had done iniquity by proclamation every man doing as much injustice to his brother as it was in his power to do. In the autumn, at Oxford, he took up his parable again. His lectures on the pleasures of England he intended as a sketch of the main stream of history from his own religious standpoint. It was a noble theme, and one which his breadth of outlook and detailed experience would have fitted him to handle, but he was already nearing the limit of his vital powers. He had been suffering from depression throughout the summer, unrelieved by the energetic work for St. George's Museum, which in other days might have been a relaxation from more serious thought. He had been editing Miss Alexander's roadside songs of Tuscany and recasting earlier works of his own, incessantly busy, presuming upon the health he had enjoyed and taking no hints nor advice from anxious friends who would have been glad to have seen the summer spent in change of scene and holiday-making. At Oxford he was watched with concern, restless and excited, too absorbed in his crusade against the tendencies of the modern scientific party, too vehement and unguarded in his denunciations of colleagues, too bitter against the new order of things, which, to his horror, was introducing vivisection in the place of the old-fashioned natural history he loved, and speculative criticism instead of religious and useful learning. He was persuaded to cancel his last three attacks on modern life and thought, the pleasures of truth, of sense, and of nonsense, and to substitute readings from earlier works, hastily arranged and rewritten, and his friends breathed more freely when he left Oxford without another serious attack of brain disease. He wrote on December the 1st, 1884, to Miss Beaver, I gave my fourteenth, and last for this year, lecture with vigour and effect, and am safe and well after such a spell of work as I never did before. To another correspondent a few days later, here are two lovely little songs for you to put tunes to and sing to me. You'll have both to be ever so good to me, for I've been dreadfully bothered and battered here. I've bothered other people a little too, which is some comfort. But in spite of everything, the vote was passed to establish a physiological laboratory, the museum, 
to endow vivisection, which to him meant not only cruelty to animals, but a complete misunderstanding of the purpose of science and defiance of the moral law. He resigned his professorship with the sense that all his work had been in vain, that he was completely out of touch with the age, and that he had best give up the unequal fight. In former times, when he had found himself beaten in his struggles with the world, he had turned to geology for a resource and a relief. But geology, too, was part of the field of battle now. The memories of his early youth and the bright days of his boyhood came back to him as the only antidote to the distress and disappointments of his age, and he strove to forget everything in bygones and preterita. It was Professor Norton who had suggested that he should write his own life. He had begun to tell the story, bit by bit, in fours. On the journey of 1882 he made a point of revisiting most of the scenes of youthful work and travel, to revive his impressions. But the meeting with Miss Alexander gave him new interests, and his return to Oxford put the autobiography into the background. Now, at last, he collected the scattered notes and completed his first volume, which brings the account up to the time of his coming of age. It is not a connected and systematic biography. It omits many points of interest, especially the steps of his early successes and mental development. But it is the brightest conceivable picture of himself and his surroundings, scenes and thoughts perhaps worthy of memory, as the title modestly puts it, told with inimitable ease and graphic power. We have traced a life which was, even more than might be gathered from Preterita, a battle with adversities from the beginning. Not to discuss the influences of heredity, there was overstimulus in childhood, intense application to work in youth and middle age, under conditions of discouragement, both public and private, which would have been fatal to many another man. And this, too, not merely hard work, but work of an intense emotional nature, involving, in his view at least, wide issues of life and death, in which he was another Jacob wrestling with the angel in the wilderness, another Savonarola imploring reconciliation between God and man. Without a life of singular temperance, without unusual moral principle and self-command, he would long ago have fallen like other men of genius of his passionate type. He outlived consumptive tendencies in youth, and the repeated indications of overstrain in later life, up to the time of his first serious breakdown in 1878, had issued in nothing more than the depression and fatigue with which most busy men are familiar. He had been accustomed to hear himself called mad, and the defence of Turner was thought by the dilettanti of the time to be possible only to a lunatic. The author of Stones of Venice, we saw, was insane in the eyes of his critic, the architect. It was seriously whispered when he wrote on political economy that Ruskin was out of his mind, and so on. Every new thing he put forward made Quintilian stare and gasp, and Soidison friends shake their heads until a still newer nine days' wonder appeared from his pen. The breakdown of 1878, so difficult to explain to his public, made it appear that the common reproach might after all be coming true. The recurrence of a similar illness in 1881 and 1882 made it still more to be feared. It seemed as though his life's work was to be invalidated by his age's failure. It seemed that the stale, shallow reproach might only too easily be justifiable. These attacks of mental disease, which at his recall to Oxford seemed to have been safely distanced, after his resignation began again at more and more frequent intervals. Crash after crash of tempest fell upon him, clearing away for a while only to return with fiercer fury until they left him beaten down and helpless at last, to learn that he must accept the lesson and bow before the storm. 
like another prophet who had been very jealous for the lord god of hosts he was to feel tempest and earthquake and fire pass over him before hearing the still small voice that bade him once more take courage and live in quietness and in confidence for the sake of those whom he had forgotten when he cried i even i only am left from one who has been out in the storm the reader will not expect a cool recital of its effects the delirium of brain fever brings strange things to pass and no doubt afforded ground for the painful gossip of which there has been more than enough much of it absurdly untrue the romancing of ingenious newspaper correspondence some of it the lie that is half a truth for in these times there were not wanting parasites such as always prey upon creatures in disease as well as weak admirers who misunderstood their hero's natural character and entirely failed to grasp his situation let such troubles of the past be forgotten all that i now remember of many a weary night and day is the vision of a great soul in torment and through purgatorial fires the ineffable tenderness of the real man emerging with his passionate appeal to justice and baffled desire for truth to those who could not follow the wanderings of the wearied brain it was nothing but a horrible or a grotesque nightmare some in those trials learnt as they could not otherwise have learnt to know him and to love him as never before there were many periods of health or comparative health even in those years while convalescent from the illness of eighteen eighty five he continued preterita and delecta the series of notes and letters illustrating his life in connection with early reminiscences he amused himself by reproducing his favourite old nursery book dame wiggins of lee he edited the works of one or two friends wrote occasionally to newspapers notably on books and reading to the pall mall gazette in the symposium on the best hundred books he continued his arrangements for the museum and held an exhibition june eighteen eighty six of the drawings made under his direction for the guild he was already drifting into another illness when he sent the famous reply to an appeal for help to pay off the debt of the chapel at richmond the letter is often misquoted for the sake of raising a laugh so that it is not out of place to reprint it as a specimen of the more vehement expressions of this period the reader of his life must surely see through the violence of the wording a perfectly consistent and reasonable expression of mr ruskin's views brantwood coniston lancashire may the nineteenth eighteen eighty six sir i am scornfully amused at your appeal to me of all people in the world the precisely least likely to give you a farthing my first word to all men and boys who care to hear me is don't get into debt starve and go to heaven but don't borrow try first begging i don't mind if it's really needful stealing but don't buy things you can't pay for and of all manner of debtors pious people building churches they can't pay for are the most detestable nonsense to me can't you preach and pray behind the hedges or in a sandpit or a coal-hole first and of all manner of churches thus idiotically built iron churches are the damnablest to me and of all the sects of believers in any ruling spirit hindus turks feather idolaters and mumbo-jumbo log-and-fire worshippers who want churches your modern english evangelical sect is the most absurd and entirely objectionable and unendurable to me all which they might very easily have found out from my books any other sort of sect would before bothering me to write it to them ever nevertheless and in all this saying your faithful servant john ruskin the recipient of the letter promptly sold it 
Only three days later, Ruskin was writing one of the most striking passages in Pritarita, Volume 2, Chapter 5, indeed one of the daintiest landscape pieces in all his works, describing the blue Rhone as it flows under the bridges of Geneva. This energetic letter-writing made people stare, but a more serious result of these periods between strength and helplessness was the tendency to misunderstanding with old friends. Ruskin had spoiled many of them, if I may say so, by too uniform forbearance and unselfishness, and now that he was not always strong enough to be patient, difficulties ensued which they had not always the tact to avert. The moment I have to scold people, they say I'm crazy, he said, piteously, one day, and so, one hardly knows how, he found himself at strife on all sides. Before he was fully recovered from the attack of 1886, there were troubles about the Oxford Drawing School, and he withdrew most of the pictures he had there on loan. How little animosity he really felt against Oxford is shown from the fact that early in the next year, February 1887, he was planning with his cousin, William Richardson, to give £5,000 to the drawing school as a joint gift in memory of their two mothers. Mr. Richardson's death and Ruskin's want of means, for he had already spent all his capital, put an end to the scheme. But the remaining loans, including important and valuable drawings by himself, he did not withdraw, and it is to be hoped they may stay there to show not only the artist's hand, but the friendly heart of the founder and benefactor. In April 1887 came the news of Lawrence Hilliard's death in the Aegean, with a shock that intensified the tendency to another recurrence of illness. For months the situation caused great anxiety. In August he posted with Mrs. A. Seven towards the south and took up his quarters at Folkestone, moving soon after to Sandgate, where he remained with short visits to town until the following summer, better or worse from week to week, sometimes writing a little for Pretorita, or preparing material for the continuation of unfinished books, but bringing on his malady with each new effort. In June 1888, he went with Mr. Arthur Seven to Abbeville and made his headquarters for nearly a month at the Tête de Boeuf. Here he was arrested for sketching the fortifications and examined at the police station, much to his amusement. At Abbeville, too, he met Mr. Dietmar Blow, a young architect whom he asked to accompany him to Italy. They stayed a while at Paris, drove, as in 1882, over the Jura and up to Chamonix, where Ruskin wrote the epilogue to the reprint of Modern Painters. Then, by Martigny and the Simplon, they went to visit Mr. and Mrs. Alexander at Bassano, and thence to Venice. They returned by the St. Gothard, reaching Hearn Hill early in December. But this journey did not, as it had been hoped, put him in possession of his strength, like the journey of 1882. Then he had returned to public life with new vigour. Now his best hours were hours of feebleness and depression, and he came home to Brantwood in the last days of the year, wearied to death to wait for the end end of book 4 chapter 9 recording by graham arrowsmith